0: Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of speech and language pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Okay, good morning everyone, or I guess it's afternoon, it's 12.29 here in Madison, Wisconsin. As promised on social media, I will be giving a summary of the 40th Symposium on Research and Child Language Disorders. Um, so we are here today, I have Dr. Michelle miner Carrivo We are both university professors at Laurentian University and are thrilled to be here. There is some background uh, noise, we are currently on a lunch break at Bel Air Cantina waiting for our uh, Mexican food started to arrive. So we just attended the uh, pre-conference tutorial for all SRCLD attendees by Dr. John Heilman. He is from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and he gave a talk on language sample analysis, so LSA, innovative applications and interesting extensions. So it was quite interesting. It was about an hour and a half long. You might hear our waitress come every once in a while to deliver some food. That's okay. Bear with us. We're doing this for you. <laughs> so uh, maybe um, I'll just give a little summary. So during this talk, Dr. Halman gave a really good overview of the various ways in which we as researchers and clinicians can use language sample analysis to accurately identify individuals with learning disorder, as well as describe the characteristics of impairments or just to gain knowledge on typical language development. So maybe I'll pass the mic on to you, uh, Michelle, to... Uh, Uh, Share with us some of your takeaway messages.
1: Well, I think to get the full benefit, you would have to Google him or uh, get your hands on some of the fabulous uh, papers that he uh, alluded to. He gave way too many uh, tips to um, to be able to be able to uh, to enumerate today. But some of the take-home messages were uh, he really highlighted the need for understanding typical development, which is a big part of what I do. And I sometimes feel that my research doesn't really fit with DLD because there's so so many new things that we need to discover about typical language development, particularly with uh, my field of research. Um, he also stressed the importance of looking at bilingual development uh, of language over time. Uh, you know, a language analysis is a snapshot, so if you're not able to go ahead and measure that over time and measure the progress or the, um, the, the, the richness of the language, uh, you may not get the true
0: representation
1: of what you're trying to uh, observe.
0: Yeah, I definitely appreciated that, um, how he specified that we need to look at it over time. Now, he did talk about how we can use language sample sample analysis to document generalization, which I thought was interesting. So, uh, we can use LSA as an outcome variable. So, for example, if you're wanting to work, he gave the example of working on ED past tense. And so, you can target that in your therapy, uh, ED and senses, but then use uh, language sample analysis and narratives, for example, to see if what you've taught the child in therapy does generalize over time into narratives or other types of um, conversation uh, or whatnot. Now, maybe, Michelle, what were your thoughts on... um, Hang on, I have to take a pause here. Okay, I had to collect my thoughts there for a sec. So he did talk about the various types of language samples that we can elicit, so maybe I'll let Michelle touch base on that. So he talked about trying to save time, and often we tend to use
1: shortcuts, but sometimes those shortcuts don't work. For example, if you're trying to elicit a narrative sample or a conversational sample, the child may not have sufficient time to demonstrate the, um, the, the, uh, the morphological representation or uh, what has been taught in therapy. So he talked about the differences between a simple conversation and how older kids and tweens and teens will use much different language than what we're used to, so it's very difficult to pin point um, some of the difficulties that may or may not occur. Uh, He talked about how he uses SALT to um, check off certain fields, I guess, and so he's able to extract some data from uh, pre-existing
0: language samples that either come within SALT or that he may have produced. Just for our listeners, SALT is a systematical analysis of language transcripts and so the pro-podcaster corrects my, uh, my lingo. My
1: lingo. Um, one of the things that I appreciated, that I wasn't really sure that there were stats on that, but he, he says that only one third of speech language pathologists will um, collect a language sample. So it really leads us to think that either they don't have the measures to, to, to use it accurately to be able to draw goals from that and to measure progress, or it's just too time-consuming. But if, it's, if you're able to identify certain goals, I think that he was saying that it, it's definitely um, a less
0: biased way of assessing language. And I used a word that's not even a word, systematic analysis, not systematical. The the waitress was coming. It's very hard to have this uh, interview while we're in a restaurant and lots going on around us. But yeah, so like you're saying, it's less biased. And he did talk about, and you touched on that earlier, on it's a good tool for assessing bilingual kids when we often don't have the standardized tools to do so. Now, he also talked about how it's a really good clinical skill to have, to be able to analyze a language transcript. Um, and, you know, for those of us who are, um, you know, professors, it's it's a good skill to teach our students as well. I really, uh, I think he touched on the
1: fact that not many programs have a strong linguistic background. Um, that's where I kind of gave us a little bit of a, a, a pat on the back because we have a lot of linguistics courses in our program. And
0: I think that our our, our Students who become clinicians are all the better for it. Absolutely. So we, he touched on the conversation type of samples, on the narrative type of samples. And of course, when you're doing narrative, you have uh, just, you know, the student telling a story on, um, on on whatever topic he chooses or according to a picture, but also story retell. So, you know, the clinician tells a story and then the student retells a story. So those are different styles that we can use. And then expository, which is a little bit like Michelle was saying, uh, we're tapping into higher level language skills here. We want the student to be persuasive, we want to see if they can come up with an argument to state some facts and to really um, plan what they're going to say. So he was saying that to really um, try to mimic what is done in school, you should give them the time to think about their argument, maybe give them a little plan, they can take notes and then they can uh, try to explain what their argument is.
1: I think that's a really important point because in uh, in the later years, in you know, intermediate and high school, they're often called upon to write, not given much time to collect their thoughts, not even given uh, templates to be able to follow. And by templates, I really mean something very simple in which they would know which paragraph highlights the introduction, which paragraph has the first argument, what are the counter arguments. But the skills required to be able to do that in writing are taught at the elementary level. So it goes with the uh, an old adage that says, you know, we need to start teaching children how to think, not what to think. So they need to be able to develop that sense of, of persuasion and, and the arguments that will support their, um, their their theory or whatever it is they're trying to, to prove, and to give them the opportunity to even be by their by themselves on on that same side of, of, of the fence, even though other people may be, uh, you know, all grouping together and thinking
0: in a different uh, a different pool. So. Yeah, he gave this quote, I I just think that we could call it the five P's, proper planning prevents poor performance. So oftentimes we have to give the kiddos that we work with, our our teens, tweens, the time to plan what they want to say, what they want to write. So in a nutshell, that's basically what it was. Um, And he kind of ended, uh, ended by saying that language sample analysis can have a very meaningful impact on the field. And... Paul McCartney's in town. (laughs) So, no, we don't have tickets. So, uh, this afternoon, we do have a couple of talks, um, Imaging Genetics Studies of Reading and Language, Promises and Perils by Dr. Nicole Landy. And then we also have um, submitted oral presentations and uh, reception. So, we'll give a summary of that next talk and some of the oral presentations later on. Okay, so we just attended the talk by Dr. Nicole Lundy from the University of Connecticut, uh, which was entitled Imaging Genetic Studies of Reading and Their Limitation, which she kind of changed her title. It was supposed to be um, Imaging Genetic Studies of Reading and Language, Promises and Perils. So she, she modified it a little bit. So now Michelle and I are sitting in front of, what did we say it was? The, um...
1: <laughs> what? Blooper! (laughs) Where are we? What are we doing? The Wisconsin State Capitol.
0: Okay, the Wisconsin State Capitol. Beautiful scene out here. Um, Sitting outside on break, we've got about uh, 22 minutes before the next um, talks resume. So, uh, Dr. Lundy is a leading researcher in language and reading development, and essentially she was able to um, show us how genes are or can be related to reading. So, her studies were conducted with children who are typically developing or are good readers, um, or those who might be poor readers, which she um, went on to use the term dyslexia. So, just uh, quickly... Um, I'm just, I lost my spot here. Okay, so dyslexia uh, is when uh, it's about prevalence, the prevalence is 5 to 12 children will have dyslexia and that is when you have a persistent and unexpected reading difficulty is the definition that she used for the talk. Okay, so she started off by giving us a few take-home points. So the first one was that studies link some specific genes with reading, but account for limited variance in reading skill. Imaging genetics approaches can tell us about brain mechanisms that link genes to behavior, and imaging genetic studies may help to identify reading genes. So this is going to be a little bit harder to summarize, but Michelle and I are going to do our best. So Michelle, did you want to give it a go? For sure. So
1: um, what we took what we took away from uh, from her talk was that she uses functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, and measures different ta- measures children performing different tasks as related to reading. So these tasks uh, ranged from uh, word and non-word reading, reading comprehension, phonological awareness, phonological memory, spelling, and IQ. And later on, she added um, vocabulary and some areas of metalinguistics to her study. So basically, what she found uh, was that in the genes that, or the gene that she claims to uh, possibly be linked to dyslexia or reading difficulty. Um, the more dopamine one has, the better performance on a host of cognitive tasks, uh, but the, the genotype that is associated, uh, more closely associated to difficulties, um is found in I forget the percentage of the population, but essentially everyone left the room saying, "Well, how do we become a met carrier?" Because they seem to have the better outcome in certain with certain tasks. Um, she also went on to say that um, brain and behavior gene, brain and behaviors uh, indicate possible mechanisms by which they can impact reading, but it's a very very small piece of the puzzle. So, many genes can impact reading, but she only looked at uh, one or two of these uh, these genes.
0: Yeah, I found it very interesting how she talked about dopamine, um, and I think I've mentioned dopamine a couple of times in uh, some of my podcasts. So, again, just a quick summary. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, so one of those chemicals that is responsible for transmitting signals in between the nerve cells, which we call neurons. Um, so, she was saying that um, You know, if you do have a certain gene, it is an enzyme that degrades prefrontal dopamine. So if you have the gene substitution, you would have an increased level of dopamine. And those who have an increased level of dopamine, like Michelle said, are typically better uh, at working memory and planning tasks and also better at certain reading tasks. Um, Uh, Didn't she also say that um,
1: those with higher levels of dopamine are those who respond... uh, more positively to reinforcement. So uh, a good reader who takes pleasure in reading, who is successful at reading, will tend to read more. Whereas, um, you know, if I, if we can do some inferencing there, uh, the opposite would also be true. So someone who's having a harder time decoding and a harder time gaining the message from the written material may shy away from it. So they're not getting as much practice. And so that leads to uh,
0: it's a snowball effect leading into their uh, their difficulties as well. Exactly. And she did talk also about the BDNF gene. So she said less BDNF um, will translate in performance that is not as good on task with reading and memory. Uh, These children may have poor poor episodic memory, working memory um, during encoding and retrieval. So very interesting to see the link um, between genetics and reading, but there is, like she said, a lot of variability. Now, uh, she was looking at functional MRI, but like Michelle said, also those behavioral tasks, so they would perform certain tasks, see how they scored on those, and then see if there was a correlation with what they saw um, functionally. She- she
1: did notice that uh, it's very difficult even for her to parcel out which parts of the results are responsible, are, are linked to the brain versus the environment. So if she's having a hard time doing that, you can imagine uh, a clinician who doesn't have access to functional MRIs, uh, I think that we're relying on them to inform us so that we can better predict uh, people who may require more support, support because the, at the very beginning of her presentation, she did say that those who are more at risk for reading and writing difficulties uh, tend to, the, those difficulties tend to be present in their genotypes. So it's present from birth. So the environment is responsible for stimulating them, and I'm sure that that can help compensate, help them compensate. But uh, there definitely is uh, a link there that uh, if we know someone is predisposed to it, um, plus add on to that low socioeconomic um, status, uh, possibly uh, some family history in there, uh, you're definitely looking at some... Uh, pieces of the puzzle that help you to understand and so to better treat these uh, these individuals.
0: If only as clinicians we had gene mapping tools <laughs> in, our, in our clinical settings. Now, she did talk also about the um, risk gene for developmental language disorder, the SETBP1. So it is still poorly understood, but um, it is said to be involved in DNA replication, cell death, and gene transcription. She said that it is associated with complex sentence productions, um, and uh, there was a study conducted uh, with a uh, geographically isolated population in northern Russia where there is a high prevalence of DLD. so I'm definitely going to take a look at that because that seemed to be um, quite interesting. So she wanted to know if this gene, the DLD-related gene, is related to reading, and the behavioural findings were that the gene was in fact associated with a number of behavioural tasks in the language assessment. So there was, the strongest association was with, like Michelle talked about earlier, phonological memory, which is in the right superior par- parietal region, um, so then they had pseudowords and, and words, so there was greater activation during pseudoword reading. And so they were showing that um, there was a certain part of the brain for these poor readers that was activated, so SETBP1 may be involved in compensatory activation during reading, which was also quite interesting.
1: I really found it interesting, which has nothing to do with her study, but she said that they are a completely donation-funded study. Um, so donations are, are <laughs> accepted if ever anyone's looking for us to answer some questions that they're, uh, that they're, they're posing in their clinical studies, in their clinical settings. Uh, we would love to hear them and uh, see if we can come up with some more clinically relevant uh, intervention-based models for those with reading difficulties.
0: For sure. So that's pretty much what uh, I summarized from that talk. It's definitely new information for me. I'm not familiar with uh, this type of of research, looking at um, polymorphism and uh, single nucleotide polymorphism and endophenotypic variability. That's all. I have a hard time even saying it. So, uh, in a nutshell, that's what that was. And we've got a few minutes to get to the oral presentations. And I don't know if we'll be splitting up, Michelle. But if we do, we'll we'll have a couple things to talk about. All right. Okay, so we are done. It was a very productive day. We uh, finished with the submitted oral presentations and then went to the reception in celebration of 40 years. Um, where we uh, celebrated uh, John Miller, who was the one who initiated the SRCLD conference 40 years ago. So that was great. Walked back to our hotel. We've got about 15,000 steps in and very appreciative of um, air conditioning. So this afternoon, the submitted oral presentations consisted of uh, one which was titled Maternal Responsivity is Associated with Development of Communication Repairs in Children with Fragile X Syndrome. And that was presented. presented by Heather Fielding, and I I apologize, I will not attempt to say that second part of her last name, and collaborators. And so um, we know that children with Fragile X Syndrome typically have delayed or impaired expressive language and pragmatic skills, and these skills are necessary to properly repair communication breakdowns that can occur during communicative interactions. So repairs are essentially the ability to persist in communication and modify a signal when a goal is not obtained. So acquisition of repairs, which are a linguistic skill, uh, at 21 months will be mastered with a 99% mastery. And then they've also uh, shown studies that at 14.8 months, that mastery is at 96% 96%. Um, and of course, the complexity of the repairs will increase with age. So, Michelle, maybe you can tell us what the strategies are to repair communication breakdowns. So, among the four strategies, um, they, were, they listed the
1: repetitions. So, someone just repeating what someone else has said to ensure that they've understood correctly. Uh, the child can use revisions. So, have a slight modification on one of their utterances um, to define to better define what they meant. Uh, the, the, the parent can use expansions. So, uh, use the same base sentence, but with an added Information, or the child can use that strategy to um, uh, clarify their message, and then there are cues. So the child will go on and on and add details as they see fit when they see that the the person that they're communicating with may or may not have understood understood what has been said. So one of the ki- takeaway messages that I uh, that I took was that. Um, autism spectrum disorder, children with autism spectrum disordered, uh, those with more severe um, uh, symptoms seemed to be better at repairing their breakdowns. Now that might seem a bit surprising, but the justification was that they have um, an increased need and an increased frequency of um, requirement to repair those communication breakdowns. So that was something that was fairly uh, interesting. And we do know
0: that Uh, A lot of children who have Fragile X syndrome also have ASD. Um, But Michelle, what I understood from that is that children with ASD will often use less complex repair strategies, such as more repetitions instead of expanding and and changing the words that they used.
1: You're absolutely right, Chantal. Um, The ability to recognize those communication breakdowns was something that was noticed among those children, but the complexity of the cueing certainly didn't reach the higher levels as it would have in someone with less of an intellectual delay.
0: One of the things that struck home for me was that, you know, I just mentioned that typically these skills are mastered by 21 months, so quite young, not even two years of age. And so they showed that when you acquire these repair strategies, or uh, acquire these repair strategies, then there is a plateau. There, you've mastered them, so there's not going to be a whole lot of differences between, you know, let's say a three-year-old with a typical development and a three-year-old who may have a disorder of some sort but has already mastered those skills. So um, it is normal to see a plateau of these repair strategies at a certain age. Mm-hmm.
1: And if you think of how young the the the, the, the children in the sample were, uh, one of the things that I um, that, that hit home for me was how often we st- we we seem to underestimate children's abilities. And one of the things that she said was that the ability to recognize the communication breakdowns and to produce some type of repair, one of the four kinds, really exists in individuals with the most rudimentary skills. So you don't have to be very old to be able to get there. So that's why the, the plateau happens at an early age. And you can't go above mastery. So once they've learned it, they've learned it. And then there seem to be less of a difference with their age matched or uh, um, uh, intellectual ma- intellectually matched peers uh, once they've, uh, they've, they've gotten to that point.
0: So we do know that autism is a social communication disorder, so they have impaired theory of mind, difficulty in communicative interchange, difficulty learning social rules, social rules difficulty with intentions. It's quite similar, I guess, with uh, fragile X syndrome. And, you know, essentially I, I saw a tweet by Dr. Michelle St. Clair, who was also at this talk, and she tweeted that, The take-home message, the bottom line, is that fragile X syndrome have delays of about 24 months in learning to effectively repair communication breakdown, and this is not predicted by language ability or maternal responsive, I wrote responsively, responsiveness. Responsivity. Responsivity, thank you. (laughs) Michelle, did you have something else to add for that talk?
1: Uh, just that um, the um, the presenter noticed that uh, or noted that uh, there may be more sensitive measures that would allow us to see differences between the language abilities of those uh, those different populations. Uh, what they used were the number of different words or the MLU, which again even in the typical population can kind of plateau or or reach a, 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 f- a fairly typical development early on. So they suggested using something more uh, analytical, like Brown stages, and really delving into the different types of morph. Uh, morph- morphemes um, that might be a little bit more sensitive to um, uh, identifying these differences,
0: which comes back to the very first talk, the tutorial on language sample analysis, if you're really wanting to look at MLU and and all that. So um, that's great. Now, the next talk, the submitted oral presentation was titled The Dimensionality of Language in Toddlers with Severe Communication and Developmental Delays. And this was a study conducted at Georgia State University um, where they essentially looked at Whether receptive and expressive language modalities are separate processes processes, or if they represent one unidimensional construct. She talked about how although most clinical language assessments make a clear distinction between receptive and expressive language skills, there are mixed findings in the literature regarding whether language is a unidimensional construct or if it represents two dimensions of expressive and receptive language. So right now we know very little regarding, regarding the dimensionality of language in very young children with severe communication and cognitive delays. So the study... Uh, used data from toddlers, uh, I think it was 113 toddlers with severe language impairments, to test these uh, two hypotheses. Uh,
1: Their participants included uh, children with um, apraxia, uh, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, developmental disability, mitochondrial disorder, um, autism, speech delay, seizure disorder, as well as some without any uh, known etiology. Uh, And they, they... They they posited that uh, their findings were similar to those uh, who identified discrepancies between receptive and expressive language. And that 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 these differences between expressive and or receptive and expressive modalities may be important for predicting language outcomes of children with severe developmental language delay. Um, one one of the key points was that comprehension is very important. Um, the highest expressive gains also had the highest expressive uh, the highest receptive vocabulary scores. So you really have to work on both of those modalities in tandem uh, in order to to maximize um, those gains and those those outcomes and. Um, the last message that I, that I retained was that receptive language skills may be a precursor of successive language outcomes with children with DL, uh, DLD
0: or developmental language delays. Yeah, exactly. So they posit that, um, you know, these young children who have severe language delays may actually demonstrate distinguishable differences between receptive and expressive language skills, which I found was very interested, interesting. Uh, and so that one thing that is still unknown is um, if language looks the same when these children age, or if we look across different groups or different populations. So that's uh, still something to be discovered. So I think in a nutshell, um, that was that talk, but I encourage uh, the listeners to definitely uh, you know, take a look at, um, so the first author is, how would you pronounce that? Michelle Caldes. I say, so Caldis yeah, from Georgia State University and collaborators.
1: And we, uh, the icing on the cake, I think, when uh, from um, these three presentations was the phonological processing profiles of nine-year-old children with Williams syndrome and relations to word reading ability by Caroline Greiner de Malgal-Heis, uh, from the University of Louisville. Um, and she talked about uh, those with Williams syndrome and their ability to acquire uh, different skills required for... Um, uh, for reading and for being able to read successfully, uh, so she looked at things like vocabulary, nonverbal reasoning, short-term memory, phonological processing, and those were relative strengths with respect to this population, who I just learned are known to be hypersocial. So you know they can separate from their parents without any hesitation. They engage well in conversation with strangers, uh, and their intellectual abilities range from severe to uh,
0: to average. Um, yeah, very interesting to see the contrast between these kiddos and the ASD kids we were just talking about earlier who had those, the, that social communication disorder. So uh, nice to see that wide range of populations covered during these three oral presentations. Absolutely. So, this group of researchers wanted to look at um, the significant differences in phonological processing ability as a function of the type of skill evaluated, and we'll talk about what these skills are. Uh, also wanted to know if there are significant relations between phonological processing ability and word reading ability, and if um, is the relative importance of phoneme deletion for word reading ability, ability also found for children with Williams Syndrome.
1: So, among a lot of the uh, the, the conclusions that, that they um, they presented, uh, I think that the. Uh the most common thread throughout her presentation was that deletion was the ability out of all four measured. So they looked at rhyming, blending, deletion, and phoneme identification and segmentation. Um, deletion seemed to be the skill that was the most strongly correlated to reading. Uh, so it explains why we really need to teach kids how to do that, how to do this. But it also is one of the higher level of the phone the the phoneme phonemic and phonological awareness um, uh, tasks. So blending was fairly easily uh, achieved by this population, whereas deleting took a little bit longer, but they certainly demonstrated that they were able
0: to learn it. And I think she was saying that the literature has shown that for typically developing children, uh, blending is usually acquired by grade one, and then deletion is a bit later, so they were saying grades three or four. So um, I don't know, Michelle, if you want to touch on, you know, we often will see that if we are you know we have a child who has a, a language disorder or a, a syndrome we might not feel that we can teach them certain skills but you know what what did you retain from that Michelle well, I
1: exactly retain that they though the um, this population may acquire the skills a little bit later. That certainly they follow the same kind of patterns in terms of uh, acquiring the most simple tasks first, and then uh, moving on to the most complex tasks later. But they can definitely learn how to do all of those things. And they talked about the importance of um, ensuring that the that phonics instruction be part of the uh, the literacy program. Uh, and I think uh, they raised a few eyebrows with some uh, some of the questions in the audience talked about the whole language approach versus phonics based approach and depending on your school district i mean uh you can have very different um, approaches, but I think that now the literature is showing us that it's not a um, it's not one or the other, something that it, that resembles um, like a structured literacy program where you start off with phonemic ar- awareness and phonics and you move on through morphology and grammar and syntax to eventually going on to uh, semantics with vocabulary and text comprehension and inferencing. Those are all part of all of the elements that make good readers. So we've long passed that, um, the, the, uh, that period of time where we thought that, you know, if the child saw the word dog often enough paired with a picture of a dog that he would eventually recognize the word dog through sight reading. Though that can, have, that can happen with a lot of kids who are typically developing and even those who are not, usually if that's the only method of instruction, they become poor decoders later on and so they'll have a harder time gaining new knowledge through reading, which is ultimately the goal. So definitely something that integrates all of these uh, levels of, of structured literacy, like in Louisa Moat's program, uh, I think is, uh, is something to be looked at.
0: Perfect. So that's about it for today. I think that's a lot of information. We're giving you a snapshot. We've been there all day, a lot of great talks, and uh, we are off to a supper with some Canadian researchers in developmental language disorder. And we will be back tomorrow to give you a summary of tomorrow's presentations. Take care, everyone. Bye.